Does a fish know that it's swimming in water? Does a fish know what kind of water it is swimming in? I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know it's good for us to know the kind of water we're swimming in when it comes to the culture of this age. We are swimming in something of a stream, a river. Do we know what kind of water we're surrounded with? The world has a culture. Scripture refers to it as this age, whether we be living in the first century or the 21st century, there's a culture around us. Uh, the, the Bible's very, very clear, uh, Romans chapter 12. In fact, turn there, if you will, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, your logical, the logical response to who God is and what he's done in redemption. In view of his mercies, the logical outcome, the logical response will be to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is your logismos. That is your logical, reasonable service, one translation renders it. Your spiritual worship. That's the normal, natural response after 11 chapters of unveiling what the mercy of God has done in the gospel. Therefore, the logical response is the presenting of our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice as opposed to a dead sacrifice. Uh, one man has commented, the difference between a dead sacrifice and a living sacrifice is that a living sacrifice has a tendency to crawl off the altar. Isn't that true? We say, Lord, I give myself to you now and forever completely. That's maybe on a Sunday by Tuesday. We say, ah, not so much. That's our tendency. Prone to wander is our condition. But look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world or this age. Suske matidso is the Greek word there regarding conform. Do not be conformed to this world, to this age. There's an age around you. In Rome, it would have been the culture of Rome. We have a culture in our society, wherever we live in this world, where there's a culture around us that sometimes is uh, hard to see, but sometimes it's just clearly evident. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. The word there is metamorphuo. We get the English word metamorphosis. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you by testing may discern, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's an age around us, there's a culture around us. We need to know what the water is and what kind of water it is that's all around us as we uh, philosophize about what the fish knows. It's good for us to know. In fact, that's what the writer Paul is instructing us. 
You've got to know what the age is saying before you can make up your mind. I'm not going to be conformed to it. And certainly to obey the command, do not be conformed to this world. There's very, very little in the first 11 chapters regarding things the, uh, the Word of God here is telling us to do. Romans 6, I can think of as an exception where it says, put to death, present your bodies uh, uh, to God, uh, do something in response. Here, the age is something that we need to oppose in our thinking. We're not to conform to it. One paraphrase of this, Philip's translation, says, do not allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. Although that is not a word-for-word rendering, it captures the thought. It captures what Paul and the Holy Spirit through Paul is uh, communicating to us. Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. It has a mold. It wants you to be a certain way. It wants you to think a certain way, dress a certain way, speak a certain way. And certainly one of the things most evident in our culture today is the only heresy, it seems, is to speak about the fact that there is heresy. Truth is under attack. The very concept of truth, not merely the doctrines that conform to truth, but truth itself. We live in a relativistic age where relativism says every view is equally valid. A lot of that emerges from the wonderful thing called America, where you are not, unlike many other nations, you're not persecuted for believing something different from what is established by authority. Thank God for the United States Constitution that gives us the legal right to believe what we wish to believe. You can believe anything you want to. I I thank God for that freedom. In the sense that it allows uh, we who are believers in the Bible to believe the Bible without fear of persecution. Well, how is that right? Well, it's right because what happens if the authority says believing the Bible is a crime? Thank God for the freedom to be able to say, I can believe the Bible in America and not face persecution. Now, how long that continues, we don't know. But the Constitution, as it stands, gives us that legal right. Now, let me say this. God never gives us the legal right to believe falsehood. (laughs) Not in his court. He's revealed his word. And it's our job, our assignment, our responsibility to seek out the word of God to know what is true. Jesus said in his prayer to the Father in John 17, Thy word is truth. It's the starting point. God has given us his word, and that is the truth. And therefore, our doctrines, our thinking, what we teach, needs to be conformed to the word of God to be true, because the word of God is the truth. The Bible alone is the word of God. Now, in our culture, as I was saying, the heresy out there, though it's not always written down, 
but it's the water around us, it's the air around us, it's the air we breathe, is this. You are a divisive person if you point out what is false. If you say, that's wrong, that is considered a heresy by the culture. Here again, Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this age. Be transformed, metamorphosized, like a, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. That's uh, something that has undergone metamorphosis. You as the Christian are to be metamorphosized, not look like the caterpillar anymore, look like the butterfly. By, here's the way you do that, renewing your mind. R.C. Sproul's radio program, Renewing Your Mind, is a direct result of meditation on Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It's a key verse in our Bibles. It's a command of God. We are to think God's thoughts after Him, to challenge our brain to know what does the age say, what is the culture saying, and what does the Word of God say. And our responsibility is to believe and to teach, teach to our children, teach to, to those who will show up to be taught the Word of God. Teach the Word, preach the Word. The Word of God is the standard. Move on in Romans to chapter 16. And Paul is in that chapter saying his goodbyes and his greetings to those he knows. That's uh, a wonderful, wonderful chapter for that reason. But in verse 17, Romans 16, 17, he writes this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and cre create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Notice the instruction again. This is so contrary to our age, but this is the word of God. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for, to mark, to, uh, if you see their name, put an asterisk next to it and say, uh, make a note of that one. It's, it's literally to mark, to point out, and watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. How do they cause divisions? Contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, they teach other things. In other words, they teach heresy. And the Bible says, avoid them. Do you see that at the end of the, voice, the, the verse? Avoid them. Mark them, watch out for them, avoid them. And then here's why they don't serve Christ but their own appetites. And by their smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. This is so contrary to culture. Do you know it's so contrary to the spirit of the church in the sense of where the church is at, generally speaking? Uh, it, it is thought of as divisive to point out heresy. And that is because the world has been influenced by the church. It's been well said by means of something of a parable. 
the ship in the sea is right. The sea in the ship is wrong. And the church in the world is right. The world in the church is wrong. Worldly thinking says it's wrong to point out error. I don't know how you can read anything in the New Testament. I can't think of a single book of the New Testament. Perhaps it's one of the little ones like uh, Third John. I'm not, no, maybe not even that, Second John. I'm trying to think, is there a, a, a book in the New Testament where someone somewhere is not pointing out heresy and saying that's wrong? It's throughout the New Testament. I know that. If we're conformed to the world, we'll say we can't talk about error or point it out. But if you know your Bible, even this verse, verse 17 of Romans 16, challenges us. You need to do something here. Watch out. Watch out and mark and avoid those who cause divisions. Now hear this. It's the false teachers who are causing the divisions. This is so important. It's the false teachers that are causing divisions, not the pastor and the preacher that is pointing out the truth and pointing out the error and those who are teaching error. The false teachers are to blame, not the true teachers pointing out the false teachers. They are the ones, the false teachers, who are causing division. When they make a false statement about who God is, when people believe that, it's a division in the professing church. if, if, If you and I, if we'd been taught anything of church history, We'd, um, we'd understand that the church has flourished when it called out false teaching and made the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. These were born out of controversy born out of false teaching being around and the church having known what it believes says we've got to band together and come up with a statement that all Christians can agree on based on the teaching of scripture and by that kept the church within the bounds of orthodoxy and saying you can believe this you can believe this but if you go outside of this this line shows where heresy is move through this line, walk over this wall, jump over this wall and start believing and teaching other things, you've entered the realm of the heretic where heresy is not just a little error. All of us have errors. We don't always know where our errors are. And that's why we seek the scriptures and the study of the scriptures constantly to hone out and remove our errors. But heresy is something different. Heresy is an error of an extraordinary kind that, if believed, damns the soul. 
the book of Peter, I believe it's Second Peter, speaks of damnable heresies. Heresies are teachings that if believed, damn the soul. There are th certain things we must believe. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. There's never a statement, unless you believe in uh, some small area of eschatology, the end times, you must believe this about the Antichrist, the tribulation, and when it occurs. You, you must believe it exactly this way or else you'll die in your sins. No, but you've got to believe in the true Christ. Unless you believe I am, Jesus said, you'll die in your sins. John chapter 8, verse 24. So, when the church called out false teachings, it was help to the church. And the church grew and flourished because there was this courage to stand against heresies. One man said this, let's be real. If the saints of the early church weren't fighting over doctrine and calling out heresies, then today we would likely believe an entirely different version of who Jesus was and the gospel would have been lost in the process. Now, that's the end of the quote, but the, the providence of God, the, the, the majesty of God, the, who, who God is, he would have uh, certainly desired to protect his church, and he will. He will build his church, but a means he uses in doing that is the church in harmony with the Holy Spirit's help, defines what true doctrine is. And so there's a, there's a cause, there's, there's a fight to the Christian faith to say, this is who God is, Trinity. This is who Jesus is. We call it the hypostatic union in theology. He is truly God, truly man. Not half God, half man, not a blend of the two. He's truly God. All that God is, Jesus is. All that man is, the second person of the Trinity has become. In time, there was an incarnation. The Word, eternal Word, became flesh at a certain point in history. John chapter 1, verse 14. Gnosticism, Arianism, modalism, Nestorianism. These may not be familiar terms to you, but all of these have been stood against by the professing church to say, that's wrong. We should be grateful for those in church history who fought hard against falsehood. Many times they, they paid with their lives. And if you know who Christ is today and someone has been explaining it to you, or explaining him to you, we stand on the shoulders of giants who have known doctrine and expressed that doctrine in clear terms in help of the church. Uh, keep that in mind. Next time you, you think of uh, uh, and, and you hear the culture of the age, oh, it's wrong to call out false teachers. You read Paul, he names names. He does. We should not do it haphazardly, but there was a point by uh, 
its inclusion in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit's endorsement of that, where not only did in general Paul write in Romans 16, watch out for those, without naming names, who cause divisions, certainly he does exactly that in his pastoral epistles. And, and, and as, we, as we read these, let's be in mind, let's be mindful of that. We need to know the truth about God, theology. We need to know the truth about man, anthropology. If you've got a blank piece of paper, uh, I'd like you to write some things down. And if you don't, perhaps you can pause at this point and get out a blank piece of paper and a pen and write these things down. I think in seeing some of these things written down, it'll help us uh, as we go through this study. And again, as we study... We're going to have to use our minds. We're going to have to uh, learn some things. Study to show yourself approved by God, Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15. As a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of God. I'd like to talk about man. And this is critical for our understanding of who God is, who man is, to know what God has done in redemption and exactly what grace has achieved. So when we talk about man, it's not just for the sake of it. It's to understand man's condition and what God has done to save. And the result of that, the logical response of that, in conformity with what we've already heard from Romans 12, is in view of the mercy of God, present our bodies. It will lead to right worship. When we understand who God is, who man is, and what God has done in redemption, in saving sinful man, those who come to Christ. I'd like to talk about three views on man's condition. Three views on man's condition. The first is something called Pelagianism. You ever heard that word? Pelagianism. P-E-L-A-G-I-A-N-I-S-M. If you can write that down. Number one, Pelagianism. Under the title, Three Views on Man's Condition, Pelagianism. Um, you can sum up the theory of Pelagianism is, uh, by this. Salvation is all of man. It's what man does. It's everything man does. And then in brackets, human monogism. That's a big word. Let me explain it. Monogism. It's a wonderful word. In fact, one of the best. In fact, I think the best theological website uh, on the Internet for theological insight and articles and true doctrine is a place called monogism.com. There was a blog for monogism.com and I had the privilege of being a writer for that called reformationtheology.com um, uh, f- from 2005 to about 2019 um, and um, again linked with monogism. That's just a personal anecdote but monogism comes from um, two words sandwiched together. Mono which means one and then the unit of energy, erg, mono, 
and then erg sandwiched together. Monogism, putting those two together, is one party working, one working. So if one person does a job, we would call it, it's not the normal phrase we'd use, but this is the word we're talking about, we would say if one person does a job, that's a monogistic work. Now, if two or more are involved in a job, if you're digging a hole and um, putting pipes under the ground and one person's doing the job, we'd say well, he did that monogistically. But if two or more people are working on the job, we would say that's a synergistic work. S-Y-N, not S-I-N, S-Y-N, erg, synergism, synergism. Um, and in fact, that's a buzzword in the business world today. Uh, there's a problem in a company and the boss brings all the folk in who are the major players and say, all right, let's synergize. Let's get our thoughts together. Uh, uh, Gladys, what's your thought? John, what's your thought? Peter, what's your thought? Tony, what's your thought? Uh, let's synergize. Let's get our thoughts together. Let's work on this project together. Now, this becomes vital when we understand these two words. There's not, I'm not trying to bamboozle you by using big words, monogism, synergism, but I tell you, that's at the very heart of what we're going to talk about today. And it's at the very heart of our understanding of what grace has done. God in his grace has done for sinners. Is salvation a monogistic work or a synergistic work? That, ladies and gentlemen, is the issue in the matter of grace. The reformers to a man, all the major reformers, were monogistic. They may not have used that word, that term, but they believed that God alone saves. And that was at the very heart of the gospel that they proclaimed. They proclaimed justification by faith alone, but they also said by grace alone. And if you can picture an iceberg in water, what shows on the surface, what shows not above the ground, but above the water, what shows above the water, the ice above the water is just a small token of the size of the iceberg and what is beneath the water. And if you like using that as an analogy, what shows above the water in the Reformation was certainly the concept of justification by faith alone. That was the material principle of the Reformation. The, that was the stuff. That's what was the talk. Justification. How is a man, how is a woman made just and right in the sight of God? But underneath that, and certainly it was a massive discussion, but the main discussion being justification, underneath the surface of it, to, to use the iceberg analogy, was a matter of grace. Sola gratia. Sola fide, justification by faith alone, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. God does all that is necessary, and he does the job alone. Well, where's man in all this? 
doesn't he respond? Yes, he does respond. But he responds rightly because of grace, because of gift. Gratia, by grace. When we come to the issue of where do we get our faith, a big question is, is it inherent within us? Many will say that. We have faith. You know, you, if you sat on a chair, if you're listening to me sitting on a chair, you've put faith in the chair. You've believed that it will hold you up. Well, that's natural faith. Supernatural faith is a gift of God, the ability to believe in Christ. And that is not innate to us. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's where we're going. And this is vital. This is really vital information we need to understand. So, if you've got your sheet of paper, three views on man's condition. Number one, Pelagianism. Salvation is all of man. And then in brackets, human monogism. I believe you can understand that if you've never come across these phrases before. <coughs> I'd love to take us on a journey into the truth of this. Here's the belief of Pelagianism. Man is well. Man is good. It's named after the British monk Pelagius. We're not sure exactly which country in Britain he came from. There's speculation on that, but he was certainly British. His name, Pelagius. He lived from 354 to 418 AD. What was his belief? Well, he, he like Romans 16, was a smooth talker. He had a following. Uh, smooth talking, flattery deceives the hearts of the naive. Romans 16, verse 18. Pelagius was such a man. He believed in man. He believed that Adam's sin only affected Adam. It had no consequence for the human race. It affected no one but Adam. And those born since Adam have been born into the same condition Adam was in before the fall, neutral towards sin. Human beings are able to live free from sin if they want to. And man can save himself. Once again, human monogism. God is not really part of the picture. I guess he's there. There was a belief in God, but to be saved, you do it yourself. God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that? Some people think that's a Bible verse. <laughs> it is not. It is not. Human monogism. Now, Pelagius was one day reading one of Augustine's prayers. He wrote his prayers down, and uh, his confessions are still of massive influence even in our own day. Augustine or Augustine. Uh, had massive influence in the church and was by far the greatest theologian outside the New Testament in the first thousand, thousand years of the church. Maybe ever, but um, Augustine, Augustine didn't have a fellow Augustine around him to challenge him on certain things, but for his, his day, he was a colossus. And uh, he wrote a prayer, Augustine wrote a prayer, and it seemed somewhat innocuous when he wrote this in his prayer, Lord, 
command what you will and grant what you command. Does that send you into a tizzy? Does that send you into anger of an immense degree? Well, it did for Pelagius. He was apoplectic. He was just out of, he went nuts over this, really did. Not with the first part of what was written, Lord, command what you will, because God has every right to command obedience uh, of us, his creatures. But it was the second part. And grant what you command. Give what you command. Pelagius thought this. Now, as you hear this, you think, yeah, that, that sounds kind of right. Yeah, that's the spirit of the age. That's the culture. That's the culture even in the church. Pelagius thought that if God commanded something, for God to be just and remain just, man would need to have the ability to do what God commanded without grace. You don't need grace. If God gives you a command, you must have the ability to do it. If God says, run the 100 meters in less than 10 seconds, run that race in less than 10 seconds, you must have the ability to do it or else God wouldn't be just in commanding you to do it. Now, at first glance, that seems right. That's why he had a following. But it's heresy. God does have the right to command us, but we need grace to fulfill that command. Take this one. It's a command of Jesus. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Find that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Well, we say, well, nobody's perfect. Yeah, that's the point. But you know what? We are responsible to be perfect. <laughs> and we cannot be perfect without God helping us. And even with God's help, we, we, we don't get to perfection in this world. But still, God does not raise, excuse me, lower the standard just because men are not getting to the standard. Jesus still said, even though man is sinful, be perfect. Because that's the command of God. God has absolutely every right to command perfection of his creatures. And the natural response, if we are biblically trained and aware of ourselves, is to say, I'm not perfect. That's right, God would say. I need a savior. Yes, right. You see, we call this law and gospel. The law is righteous. It demands perfection. And the right understanding of the law will make us seekers after grace. Do you see that? God doesn't say, well, only 60% are getting to this certain point. I'm going to lower the standard of what I require. No, he, he is absolute in righteousness and he requires absolute righteousness. And it's right for him to do so. But man now, since the fall, affected by Adam's sin, is not righteous in and of himself, is not good within himself, and needs grace. And so in grace, and because of the need for grace, we cry out, Oh God, help me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's a prayer God answers. Rather than, Lord, I'm righteous, 
have me come into your courts because of my righteousness. God says, you, you have no idea how blemished you are. All our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. You'll read of that in Isaiah 64, verse 6. So back to Pelagius. He was a British guy, but he was a heretic. He read, Lord, command what you will, grant what you command, the words of Augustine. And he would say this, there's no need for God to grant what he commanded. On the other side, Augustine defended what he wrote. He defended his view that although God commanded, man needs grace. God needs to grant grace to us so that we can be empowered to do what he commands. How about this one? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. We need grace to do that. Repentance is a gift. Faith is a gift. So Pelagianism, named after the man Pelagius, is a humanistic, man-centered teaching. And while very positive, it limits the nature and scope of sin and flatly denies the necessity of God's grace. Pelagius' view was condemned as heresy by the church of the time. Why? It has no basis in Scripture. Nowhere. But that view that it was condemned never really went away, and it's very prevalent in our own day. One man has said this, we're all Pelagians at heart. We think we can do anything God commands or achieve salvation without the need for grace. That's an attraction in Islam. Islam teaches that you by your works have at least a chance of right relationship with God. You never know what Allah is going to do, but he's going to view things based on your works. There's actually an appeal to that. And there is an appeal to Pelagianism. Most of the self-help talk, if you go to a bookstore and you see self-help section. Uh, It's all about, you can do it. Here's 18 ways for you to get to do it. There's no mention of God, if at all. He's on the peripheral. Uh, The best-selling works are, are about, you do this, you'll get this result. And in many ways, it's true. On a human level, to build a business, to get fit, to have health. There are certain things you do, you will get a result at the end of it if you stick to your guns, if you'll stay true to the concepts. There are some very good concepts that are in those books. But in terms of theoretical theory, these are not books inspired by God. We we need to make that clear. But also... These are not books on how to get to God. They may help you in terms of getting some system in place whereby you avoid distractions and you get about your task at hand and all of these are very, very helpful concepts. But regarding salvation, there's one book we need, the Bible. And it's very clear on how to be saved. And it's not by works. It's not about human effort 
It's by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, man's actions, lest any man should boast. So that's Pelagianism, view number one. View number two, synergism. We've mentioned that word. Speaks of cooperation. It's through the actions of more than one. Synergize, S-Y-N. Sin, erg, more than one power working. Here's the belief of synergism. Man is sick, even mortally sick. If we were as healthy as some of the optimists say, surely war, disease, starvation, poverty, these kind of problems that we face today would have been eliminated by now. So let's be realistic. Man is sick. He's even mortally sick. Since such problems have not been fixed, synergists say that something is basically wrong with human nature, yet the situation's not helpless. It's bad. It's very bad. It's even desperate, but it's not hopeless. We haven't blown ourselves off the planet yet, so there's no need to call the mortician yet. <laughs> Human nature, the belief in synergism is that we've been damaged by the fall. Adam's fall did affect us. But here's when it comes to the issue of man's condition. Synergism suggests this, teaches this. The will of man is not enslaved to sin, but is capable of believing in Christ even prior to regeneration, you know that word regeneration, to come alive spiritually, to be born again. Let me say that again. The view of synergism is that the will is not enslaved to sin, but capable of believing in Christ even prior to the new birth, although not entirely apart from God's grace. The view is this, every sinner retains the ability to choose for or against God either cooperating with God's Spirit unto salvation or resisting God's grace unto damnation. As I say this, you'll realize I've heard this a lot. Yeah, this is prevalent in the church. Uh, the idea is God's done almost everything. Billy Graham was known to say that God has done 99% of the job, that 1% is in your hands, you just take the step towards him now. And you won't be saved unless you do. What would they say about synergism uh, regarding, no, what would the synergists say about election, divine election? They would say it's conditional. It's determined by individual choice. You see, God chooses those who he sees ahead of time would believe in him. So that the faith God foresees is not exclusively a divine gift, but partly at least a human decision. The ultimate cause of salvation, breaking it down, the ultimate cause of salvation in synergism is not God's choice of the sinner, but the sinner's choice of God. The idea is this, God has voted for you, the devil's voted 
against you, you have the casting vote. That's synergism. Now, under this broad heading of synergism, we have two further or basic schools of thought. Uh, keeping the number two for synergism, after, after that, write the letter A, semi-Pelagianism. Again, a concept we've got, we, we, we sh really should grasp. That's why I'm teaching this. That's why I'm going over this. There's a purpose. Semi-Pelagianism. Here's the teaching. Man initiates, God helps. Man initiates, God helps. R. Kyle in the Elwell Evangelical Dictionary defines semi-Pelagianism this way. Divine grace is indispensable for salvation, but it does not necessarily need to precede a free human choice because despite the weakness of human volition, the will takes the initiative toward God. End of, end of quote. Semi-Pelagianism. Man starts the process. God helps him along the way. Letter B. Arminianism. That is the teaching that God initiates by offering grace. God initiates. Semi-Pelagianism, see the distinction? Man initiates, God helps. Arminianism says God initiates by offering grace and then mankind either does or does not cooperate with that grace. All under the broader heading of synergism, a, semi-Pelagianism, man initiates, God helps. Arminianism, God initiates, man cooperates. This is very popular in our day. Arminianism still comes under the broader theme of synergism. Here's why. Regeneration in this view, takes place through the cooperation of man with God's grace. That is rife as a view in the professing church today. Let's go to the final view we'll discuss, Augustinianism, named after Augustine or Augustine. It's the Reformed view. I believe it's the biblical view. Here we would express it as Rather than Pelagianism, this is the exact opposite. What do we say about Pelagianism? It's human monogism. Augustinianism, the Reformed view, is divine monogism. God does all the work. One work, mono, means one. You know the difference between mono and stereo. Mono is one. One power working. Divine monogism. I believe that's the teaching of the Bible. God saves by his divine power alone. In Pelagianism, man is well. He's doing great. Just needs maybe a pop, uh, you know, uh, someone to pop in like a coach and give a pep talk. It's half time. Hey guys, uh, we got this. You can do this. You can beat the opposition. You can, you can do all you need to do by yourself. Little determination, focus. Hey, Charlie, focus. We got this. 
That's Pelagianism. Uh, Synergism. Man's sick, even mortally sick. There's a recognition of the fall. But he's not so sick that we need to call the undertaker. No, he's not dead. He's really, really sick. It's the idea that man is in the water, he's going down for the third time, he's going to be drowned, and his, the tips of his finger, uh, tips of his fingers are, are just above the water, and God in the lifeboat throws out uh, the the the. The, the, the round ring to, to help him be rescued. And man, what, what, what happens is that it's thrown so close to him, it's right at his fingertips, but he has to curl his fingers around the life raft, the, 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 the ring, to, to be saved. And if he clings on, he'll be saved. That's, that's the idea. Or else he's in the hospital bed, he's finding it even hard to breathe. And God, in the illustration, would come in with a pill that will revive and heal the the man about to die. He's on his last breaths. And God, in the illustration, would put the pill in the man's mouth, but the man still has to swallow. His will is still involved. And without that, God can't save. It sounds biblical till you realize the biblical picture is not man almost drowning and being rescued or in a hospital bed about to die, breathing his last. Biblically, man's in the morgue. He's dead. And that's the belief of Augustinianism. Man is dead, spiritually. And that's what our Bible teaches. It's so clear. Ephesians 2 verse 1, Paul writing to Christians, you he made alive who were really doing well? No. Really, really sick? No. Dead. Necros. Dead. What does that word mean? It means dead. In Greek, it means dead. (laughs) Man is dead. And here's where we're going with this. When we understand man's condition and Therefore, what God does to save, it will provoke true worship. Each of the members of the Trinity are at work in the salvation of the sinner. God the Father elects a people for salvation. Jesus the Son, Jesus the Son redeems them in his atoning work on the cross, and God the Holy Spirit regenerates them, bringing them to life. It's the picture of Lazarus being a lifeless corpse in the tomb. Did not cooperate with Christ in regard to his own resurrection. Jesus simply cried out monogistically, Lazarus, come forth. And that call was powerful. That call was sufficient in and of itself to bring Lazarus back to life. That's a beautiful picture of what God does in our regeneration from spiritual death. We must be born again, but it's not in our power to be born again. We must be born from above. We must have God 
regenerate us monogistically. Otherwise, you've got people with dead, stony hearts applying for a heart transplant. Not going to happen. There's nothing in us that wants the true God, that will believe the true Christ and the true gospel. We will form idols. We might believe in a God, we might not. We might suppress the truth of God. But what we don't want with our unregenerate heart is God as it really is. We have the nature of Adam after the fall. We run from God when we hear of him. Where are you, God says. See, God raises the dead. Once receiving that grace of regeneration, being born again, then infallibly we respond in faith to that effectual call. And I believe that's what we read in Ephesians 2. It's a beautiful but biblical description of man's state before he's regenerated. He's dead in trespasses and sins. So Augustinianism, obviously named after Augustine, Augustine in the 5th century AD, the battle between Pelagius and Augustine was a worthy war on the side of Augustine. It was right for him to stand against Pelagius with his heresy of human monogism. Here's the biblical picture. As far as his relationship to God is concerned, man's a lifeless corpse, unable to make a single move toward God or even respond to God unless God first brings this spiritually dead corpse to life. Although spiritually dead, it's a strange death because he's nevertheless up and around. He's up and about, actively practicing sin. He is what horror stories would call a zombie. That's man's condition spiritually before being born again. He's dead, but he's walking around. That's a fair description of what Paul says about, what what he writes about human nature in its last condition. Apart from the Lord Jesus, these sinning human corpses are the living dead. Man's will is enslaved. John chapter 8, verse 34. He who commits sin, Jesus said, is enslaved, is the slave of sin. So man has a will, grasp that, he has a will, most definitely. But this will never wants God. Romans 3.11, there is no God seeker. That's who we are by nature. Romans 8, 7 describes the carnal nature of man. Will not submit to the law of God without the direct and gracious intervention of God. The sinner is active, dead spiritually, but he's active practicing evil. He's dead towards God. He's alive to evil. Dead towards God. He's also by nature an object of God's wrath. Let's wrap this up with a look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, I think there's, there's many scriptures, many passages in scripture that 
outline this, but I think this is the clearest. Ephesians 2. And you, talking of the Christians at Ephesus, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So you're dead, but you're walking around, zombie-like. In which you once walked, following the course of this age, this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul writes and says, I was in that condition too. We all once lived in that condition. What's the next couple of words found in verse 4? But God. It does not say, but man with a little island of righteousness still remaining, reaches up to grab the rope, reaches out to grab hold of salvation. No, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, that's the second mention of the word dead, even when we were dead. So when did we come alive? When we were dead. Even when we were dead in our trans, uh, transgressions, trespasses. Let's, let's, let's go back, verse 4. But God, God being the subject, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Who did that? God did. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That, ladies and gentlemen, is divine monogism. God did it all. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Faith, salvation, grace, none of it's yours in terms of origin. This is not your own doing. It, all of it. The original text leads no doubt. It's talking about the grace, the salvation, and the faith. That's what is in view in the word it. All that is in the preceding clause. Grace, salvation, faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then now we are regenerate. Verse 10, but for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Martin Luther said, God does not need your good works, your neighbor does. And we're not saved by our works, we're saved for good works. Colossians 2.13 states it this way, when you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, God, he made you alive together with him. In those verses, no mention is made of our role in this, such as when you were dead, you decided to cooperate with God's grace. Synergism. 
Then he raised you. I, I don't know how the Apostle Paul could have taught divine monogism more clearly. This third view. When we were dead, God made us alive. Now, you may not know that believing the Bible makes you Augustinian, uh, makes you an Augustinian believer of the Reformed kind. Just believe the Bible. I want to just believe the Bible. And as I believe the Bible, I see the Augustinian view presented. You see, this view removes all ground for boasting. It demolishes all human pride. It exalts God's grace as the sole, S-O-L-E, the only efficient and sufficient cause of the sinner's salvation. As Jonah 2 verse 9 says, salvation is of the Lord. Hear that. And that's why on the basis of what he does in salvation, all glory goes to God and to God alone. To grasp soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, we must understand sola gratia. Salvation is by grace alone. In closing, let me quote Romans 9.16. So then, it does not. What does not? Election, salvation, it does not depend Depend, does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together as we've talked about truth, as we've talked about not being conformed to the age, about true doctrine and false doctrine, and as we've talked about three views regarding man's condition. May we understand what you've done in salvation and therefore understanding the Bible rightly give you all the glory for it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.